there are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Good morning. It is Saturday, May the 4th, and this is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And I don't want you to adjust your dial. You are hearing the voice of me, Rabina Ahmed-Huck. I am Global News Radio's personal finance expert. Wolfgang Klein, our regular host, is on holiday, a very well-deserved break in Europe. Have you been looking at his Instagram, Jack? He, he is all over Instagram. He looks like he is a millennial the way he's out there. Uh, socializing his vacation. So he's out there. He's in. He's been in Amsterdam. He's been to a little town in Germany where his family, his distant family grew up. And uh, he's on to Vienna right now. So yeah, certainly following along and it looks, you know, pretty exciting. It is very exciting. And that, of course, is the voice of Jack Hardo. That hasn't changed. He is still here as our co-host here on Hi-Fi Radio. And as we just mentioned, Wolfgang is on holiday. I am so honored to be filling in today as your host. I talk about personal finance all the time but only in little six and seven minute segments here on uh, 640 Global News Radio. So it's such an honor to be able to talk about it for an hour and sort of flesh things out a little bit more uh, that I never get time to do. So thank you so much, Jack, for having me today as your co-host. You're welcome. I know Wolfgang really trusts you because this is the first time, uh, believe it or not, in the two years that we've been running this program that Wolfgang's actually been off. There's been a few repeats that we've rerun, but like I said, he really must trust you. And obviously, you know, uh, business news doesn't stop. So it's very important that we, you know, track what happened in, in the weeks, uh, in the week that passed and, you know, looking forward as well. Well, let's see what he thinks after this hour is done, whether he ever asks me back or calls me and tells me a Get a great job or maybe not so great of a job. We've got some really interesting things that we're talking about, things that I, you know, are ne- near and dear to my heart. Uh, one is taxes. Uh, this term that has been uh, uh, coined by uh, a, a, a gentleman at CIBC, Jamin, Jamie Golembeck, uh, called intoxication. It's sort of a play on intoxication. Do you know what this is, intoxication? Have you have you heard this term being thrown around? I think a lot of Canadians are probably experiencing it right now just with the fact that they're getting some of those refunds uh, in the mail or they might even have direct deposit. I actually had a direct deposit on Wednesday into my account and... Uh, I saw this article actually the same day, Yep, which was kind of interesting. Um, so I had to make a decision on what to do with my refund. So it, it fits perfect into, you know, the time frame that we're looking at here right now. So what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you do? I asked my wife what she wants to do. <laughs> okay. And what did she want to do? Well, she's actually, um, I wouldn't say I've trained her, but she's, she's the spender in the family, okay. shall I say. And I've been the saver investor and uh, together, yin and yang kind of works. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually said to me that we should pay off our car loan. Very good. That's yeah. a smart thing to do with the money. Yeah. Absolutely. So there, there are lots of things that you can do uh, with your tax refund. But the, I think the key thing that uh, investors have to realize and uh, and savers have to realize is really you're actually only getting your own money back. Exactly. Right? And that's what this intoxication idea is all about, is that we get intoxicated yeah. with this idea that all this money is coming. A lot of people will refer to it as free money or money from the government. It is taxes you paid throughout the year that now the CRA is refunding you back. That and you, you, You've really given them a free loan. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. So the way I look at it is I look at it uh, just as I would have earned it. So I'm going to spend it just as I would have earned the money because actually that is what happened. Right. So when you think of it that way, uh, it's really not like a, a windfall that you expect. And as investors, as investment advisors, Wolfgang and I come across this euphoria when you have a windfall a lot and you see it with lottery winners you see with athletes you see with entertainers Mm -hmm. you see it with inheritances 
these people that I'm not saying they got the money easily, but they didn't systematically save and earn it. When that happens, they tend to spend it a lot easier. So, you know, uh, inheritances tend to get spent. I'm not saying willy nilly, but, you know, I got a $100,000 inheritance. I'm going to go buy myself a, a car that I never would have bought. Right. Uh, had I had it, I earned it. So it's, yeah. So, yeah. and athletes are, are notorious for the fact that uh, they have very short income spans and then they end up spending their money throughout their career, which is short, and they continue spending on throughout. So it's, it's a, it's, a, it's a fact that athletes, entertainers end up bankrupt. And Wolfgang actually sent me an, an email last, or yesterday actually, and he was talking about Mozart. Right. Because he's in Vienna. Okay. And he's going to give us a story when he comes back. But Mozart obviously toured around a lot yeah. as a musician and as a spendthrift back in the classical era of music, whatever that was. Right. He ended up pretty destitute at the end of it. Interesting. Okay, well, I can't wait to hear that story and uh, everything that Wolfgang's been up to. And we are going to dive deeper into this idea of uh, why we get so excited about this refund and what we should be doing with it. You know, should we, like you said, be putting it against a, a loan that we have? Should we be putting it back into the RRSP, which is what I would, uh, which I would recommend? Um, yeah. Definitely not spending it on things like going out for dinner, buying new shoes, going on vacation. Those are things that should spend just spend it like you earned it because that's exactly what you did. And I totally agree with you with the RSP. The reason why we didn't put it in the RSP is because we actually systematically save monthly for our RSPs. So You've that, got that that's maxed care out. Of. Well, that's yep. maxed out. So then you focus on the next thing, which is like you said, RESP. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our family, that's taken care of too. You want to make sure you get the 20% government grant there. Right. And then beyond that, the order of operation is paying off debt. And then actually tax-free savings account is the way I look at it. Interesting. So we're going to talk all of that. We have a great guest uh, coming in later this morning, Amos Nadler. He is with the Richard Ivey School of Business at Western. He is a uh, expert in behavioral finance. So talking about why we make dumb decisions with our money, why we continue to do things that we know are against our best interests when it comes to our money, and what we can do to get ourselves out of that. So if you're someone who realizes, I've been paying these bank fees for so many years and I get nothing out of it, but you're stuck. You don't know how to change from one bank to the next, how you can get thinking differently about your money, how you can get better advice about your money, not just about bank fees, because we talk a lot about bank fees, but you know, the real stuff is what interest rate are you paying on your mortgage? How are you investing your money? What fees are you paying to your advisors? Those kind of things are the ones that really affect your long-term wealth, in my opinion. Yeah, behavioral finance is, is one of the, the newer uh, fields in finance uh, relative to classical finance, so finance theory. But the, the fact is, a lot of the times, we're really our own worst enemy. And I think uh, Amos will give us a good idea of how we can educate ourselves and help improve, you know, in all those areas that you mentioned there, Rubina. And the last guest we have is a wills and estate lawyer talking about why it's so important to have a will. I need to hear from her because I don't have an up-to-date will. Yes, Global News Radio's personal finance expert does not have an up-to-date will. So I'm going to get some advice on how I can get my behind into the office and get that updated. We will be back in just a minute. This is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Good morning and welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. I am your guest host, Rabina Ahmed Huck. I am Global News Radio's personal finance expert and I'm so honoured to be filling in for Wolfgang Klein who is on a well-deserved break. We have Jack here still and we have 
Amos Nadler. He is with the Ivy School of Business uh, at Western University and is an assistant professor. And he's going to talk to us today. He's a regular. You guys have heard his voice before about behavioral finance. And we're going to talk about lotteries and taxes and all these why, fun things. Why you're your own worst enemy and how Amos can uh, help educate you be a better investor and a better saver. And a lot of the time, it is those mind games. So John Lennon talked about it. Yes. I actually just got that album last weekend, so I was pretty excited. Okay. Uh, listening to it on vinyl. And then I was like, we got Amos coming on. Oh. <laughs> so that $8 <laughs> vinyl bin, yeah, it's paid off. It's good. It's good. So welcome to the show, Amos. Good morning. It's great to be here as always, and nice to meet you, co-host or nice. uh, guest host. Yes, thank you very much. So just before you came on, we were talking about lotteries, and then uh, we mentioned that off air. And then Amos just started going into a whole course that he is. <laughs> yes, and we want to hear more about that. So, so let's enlighten us, Amos. Well, the uh, the reasons why people are attracted to lotteries is because we have something that's called the probability distribution distortion. That's just a fancy way of saying that we overweight the probability of something that's unlikely to happen, and we underweight the probability of something that's super likely to happen. So if you take that, and uh, a lottery is extremely unlikely to happen to any particular individual. And people are attracted to that. So prospect theory, you know, if you look at the Nobel Prize that was given in 2001, uh, so Kahneman Tversky built this model of prospect theory. And underlying this, this idea is that we are just not good at calculating probabilities of things that are happening in, in the natural world, in the financial world. And a lottery is an example of that. So we're attracted to it because we see this idea of winning $50 million dollars. Uh, we're constantly bombarded with messages where they advertise, they have an advertising budget, and then mixed with this idea of excitement and um, misestimating the probability, people go out and buy it. So you talk about how that is really a regressive tax. It's, it's a tax on the poor. So they're the ones that have this notion that, you know what, I'm not making it on my day-to-day income requirements. If I just go out and spend this $10 then you know what, I'll probably, well, I'm not going to probably win, but uh, I've got a shot at least. Win. Yeah, I've got yeah. a shot. I've got at an opportunity anyways. Yeah. So mispricing, uh, mispricing unlikely opportunities. That's exactly what happened in the big short, mm-hmm. right? So that was when subprime mortgages were mispriced and some of the smarter financial uh, characters anyways down in the US, shall I say, uh, took advantage of it. So I guess my point is uh, the regressive tax is the lottery side of things. But when you flip it to the other side, if you're a pro and you can identify these mispricings, there's actually a big opportunity. I'm not saying that the individual should actually go out and do that, but there is opportunity in that behavioral finance attribute that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Oh, access to information is key. I mean, th- those people characterized in, in the book and in the movie were looking specifically at this asset class that was mispriced and yeah. had the ability to act on it. I mean, we know shorting is very, very difficult, mm-hmm. very, very dangerous. But yeah, access to information and the sort of the ability to execute is very difficult in those situations. And, you know, the, the gains are there for those who are willing to take those massive risks. I think this would apply also to people who are trying to sell their home. You'll always hear that they think that their house is going to sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars more than it's obviously worth, and that they're going to get the house yeah, but then for when hundreds they... of thousands of dollars less than what they think it's worth, right? Yeah, when or they when... see their neighbor's house, you know, my house is worth $900,000 as an example, but my neighbor's house is exactly the same. Well, I don't have an attachment to it, so it's probably worth about eight. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. A representative of just ownership, right? You have an Classic attachment. Classic behavioral econ. So we call that the, disp- uh, so there's the endowment effect. So whatever you are endowed with, you will value more than someone else who's not endowed with it. And then so to part with it, it takes a lot more money to get you to part with something that you own relative to something that you don't own. There's been, uh, the mug experiment is, is famous in economics for this. But yeah, it's true for our houses, it's true for our stuff, our coats, our, our cars, whatever it is. We, it's something that's naturally human about us and has this effects in the marketplace. 
And it's true for tax refunds. So people are getting these fat tax refunds right now. We're getting a, a pretty fat one, actually, this year. Um, we obviously made some mistakes. We uh, should have planned better when it comes to our taxes. But um, I know that when the money comes in, that the first thing I'm going to do is either put it on our mortgage or pay down other debt or maybe put it back into the RRSP. But most people don't do that. Why do we not understand what's the best thing to do with big chunks of cash? Yeah, it feels like a windfall. Yeah, People of course. think of it yeah. as a windfall. And free money from the government. Yeah, oh, free money. Let's yeah, let's go. It's a bonus vacation. But in fact, you're well aware, and as you're sort of trained into thinking about the sort of sort of cancerous aspect of debt, and you want you are trained to want to reduce that. But most people that are not trained in thinking in the kind of the world that you're in um, think of it as this windfall, want to enjoy it, and that's that, that's very normal human behavior. But when they realize the sort of toxic effects of debt. You want to reduce that. So that's something we have to train ourselves into in a society that pushes us to do everything but save, to, pushes us to spend. So there's not really a, a huge utility of savings until you get kind of the appetite for it. Yeah, and you talk about paying off debt, which is obviously very important, getting that uh, negative compounding uh, away from you. The other option is obviously putting it back into an RSP, putting it into which an is RESP. Which ideal situation, yeah. Yeah, if, if you don't have, like I said in the last segment, a, a systematic plan, uh, you want to make sure that to, when you get those lump sums, you make sure that it's being productive. And when you you know pay off debt, that's productive. You reduce the amount of interest that you're getting charged. When you put it in your RSP and buy a productive asset or a stock that's you know has cash flow, has dividends, uh, is increasing revenue and earnings, those, those are productive assets that over time, if you systematically do it, you will build your wealth. Do you think it's language as well? Uh, we're going to talk about that after we come back. But I wanted to sort of, you know, this idea that I've been really pushing is stop calling it retirement savings, call it long-term savings, call it big fat emergency fund, so that 20-year-olds can actually get on board with that idea. When you call it retirement, they look at their grandpa and say, I don't care. I think it's language, yeah. and I also think it's education. And I think that uh, I almost mentioned that in the last hit that we had with them. You need to educate yourself uh, so that, uh, that you avoid a lot of these behavioral pitfalls. Okay, well, we'll be back in just a moment. This is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. morning and welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We are talking about why we make so many DUMB mistakes with our money. We have with us in studio Amos Nadler. He is with the Ivy Business School at Western and is an assistant professor and talks all the time about behavioral finance, behavioral economics. And of course, we have Jack Hardill here as well, my co-host. Um, we were talking a little bit about what were we talking about right before we went to break? Uh, we were talking about like why we make these decisions, why we're not able to take our tax refund and do the right thing with it. Um, just let's get back into that. Why, why is it that we don't know how to manage, especially large sums of money? I would say debt is one of the biggest problems out there. Right. Uh, we talk about Canadians being over indebted. It's one of the issues that uh, we're actually well beyond where the U.S. was before the financial crisis, before 2007, 2008. We're well beyond that threshold. And part of the reason is for the fact that we didn't experience it as deep as the U.S. They actually had a bit of a debt cleansing. Mm -hmm. But we really didn't have that. So we had a bit of a downfall back in 2007, 2008, led into 2009 with our housing market. Mm -hmm. But the after effects, I think, Beyond that was we actually benefited from the low interest rates. So our housing prices didn't go down. We didn't have that debt destruction. But and they then, did and, go but then we, skyrocketing. They went yeah. skyrocketing as a direct result, as far as I'm concerned, of the global financial crisis because that got global interest rates down to historically low levels. 
right? So one one event followed the other, and because our housing prices didn't go down as much, we got the, the, the windfall, so to speak, of low interest rates, which when you have low interest rates, what does that do to housing prices? Makes and all, a, all asset Everything classes. Is, it's all denominated by by the interest rate. I mean, yeah, so that, that, that's the whole that, that that was actually the whole premise behind quantitative easing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So when the the central banks go out and buy back their own bonds to lower the interest rates of mm-hmm. their long bonds, that's supposed to increase asset prices, and you have the wealth effect, which I'm sure the Amos can go into. And like I said, debt is one of the biggest problems, and getting out of it is a challenge for Canadians. And especially, sorry, especially for those people. If you're in your 30s, mid 30s, you've never experienced low uh, high interest rates. You've just been in low interest rate environments since the beginning of when you, you know, got uh, awoken to the fact that there is something called the economy and you can make money and you can save and you can spend. So they've never really experienced high interest rates. So how do you convince someone like that who is Well, they haven't experienced high interest rates and they haven't experienced a real housing correction either. Exactly. So important. they've only seen the market go up, they've only seen housing prices go up and They've only seen debt get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. How do you convince someone like that that they should do what well, they're it's, doing? It's difficult to convince because we build our notion of reality through our experiences. And there's some interesting research looking at people who had gone through, so like my grandparents, that gone through the depression, how that permanently changes their perception of risk, perception of crashes, perception of asset appreciation, all those things are like in a permanent way. And so certainly there's a sort of cohort effect. The people that have gone through a correction uh, are going to behave differently than people that have not. So people that are in the 40s that ha- that have a taste, that have an experience of this negative effect, maybe more conservative than those that feel like sky's the limit. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of a cohort effect. And what happens with the market is traders tend to be young. And then the older traders that have seen multiple crashes tend to not not be currently trading. So young people that have not had this correction are still making the same decisions, partly why there's a cyclicality in, in errors. But back to your original question, what can individuals, you know, people listening now, why is it we're not good dealing, dealing with large sums of money, and specifically retirement, this, mm-hmm. this like were this uncomfortable to, to to younger people. So you had some ideas about how to reframe this idea. You you had another name for a retirement account. What did you call well, it? Well, I, I just call it nest egg or call it big fat emergency fund or just call it long-term savings. I think it's the word retirement that makes people not want to be interested in saving for it. And also to push this idea that you will be immediately benefiting when you put money into your RRSP. So people think, I put money in my RRSP, but the benefit I feel is 40 years mm-hmm. from now. But in fact, the minute you put money into your RSP or your TFSA or anything that's considered long-term savings, you're immediately improving your financial health today. And you can make better decisions about your money because you've taken care of that very important part of your life. You're talking about branding and you're really talking in behavioral finance terms, you're talking about framing, right? You frame it a different way, people react differently and then they behave differently. Mm -hmm. If you you said that your RSP was a a tax-free way Mm -hmm. for you to save for your first home, how many many millennials do you think would be saving right now and systematically doing it? Probably but, a lot more. But when than you today. have to think yeah. out the next thirty years, when I'm going to be retired when I'm sixty-five, you know what? I'd rather be on a beach down in the Bahamas, right, having a nice drink than, than saving that extra thousand dollars a month. Yeah, it really right? is a branding issue. I'm I'm so glad you used that word. Uh, we also use um, in behavioral finance the term uh, so. It's a sort of a synonym for branding. It's mental accounting. And so so money should be fungible, meaning it's the same across accounts. It doesn't matter. But we're, we treat money very, very, very differently depending on, on which account it's in. But once you can think more like sort of like an economist that money is fungible and that we should be treating it the same in terms of you know presenting it for preparing it for long-term growth, that's one thing. The thing is that humans are built 
for immediate consumption, and we and we discount the future. There's a whole area of economics dedicated just to this that we that we have a preference for now, and that things are later we discount heavily mm-hmm. for natural reasons. I mean, historically we didn't live to be 65. Let's give ourselves a break here, people. Like <laughs> it's only recent that we got to be old enough to think about these ways. So evolutionarily, we are not even primed to deal with the world that we're presently in, and that's where our prefrontal cortex has to kick in kick into uh, our lives. We have to make decisions and stick by them, persevere. It's not easy and it's not even natural. But once you get in the practice of thinking this way and acting this way, it gets a lot easier. It actually starts to be fun, which is a word we never use in finance, I feel. But I find it fun to, to knock down these challenges and to change my financial future. Uh, but I have to realize that what's working against us is our own psychology, our own even uh, biology. And that's something I've studied also, which we can talk, talk about another time. But we have to be disciplined in our approach. And women, uh, we talked really briefly about this before you came in, Amos, was um, about how women live longer than men. We don't make as much money when we are working. We work less full-time years. So all of that plays into us being less wealthy when we do retire. And then in some cases, women have not paid as much attention to the finances. So they may be widowed and for the first time in 80 years, they all of a sudden have to deal with the money in the home. So I want to talk a little bit about that, how women can start changing their behaviors, becoming a little bit more aware of um, what's going on with their finances and just being better at um, understanding how money works in their own household. So we're going to take a break. This is Hi-Fi Radio on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Good morning and welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. We are here in studio with Jack Hardell and Amos Nadler from the Ivy Business School at Western University. And before we went to break, we were talking about women and men and how women might um, have a different experience when it comes to saving money, when it comes to retirement. Can you talk to me a little bit, Amos, about um, what is it about men and women, how we see money differently uh, through your research? What have you found? How do, especially when it comes to saving, how, how are we different when it comes to that? Well, the the biggest difference that I have found through through all all the work that I've done has been more in an, in the actual actual active investing. So I can think about the saving, but I will comment about the the investing aspect, which is that uh, men retail traders, single men, lose more money than anybody on their retail trading. Uh, married men do slightly better, but women, on average, using big data sets, do much better than men. So it seems to be that they're taking a more conservative approach. They're taking a more thought out approach to what so, to which assets. Sorry, Amos, are these Online investors, like yes. individual investors, do-it-yourself yes. investors. Yeah. Okay, just clarify. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, so we find that just at baseline that that women do a better job than males, and typically men are just trading too much. Buy guys are buying and selling stocks and losing money. So, uh, the guys do better when they have when they get married, which is probably has to do with some joint decision making with the wife, or maybe a higher level of accountability versus this kind of freewheeling shoot 'em up kind of you know trading strategy. And how does that cooperation work? I mean, you know, if the woman is the saver and the the, the husband the the husband is more like let's buy this and let's trade this, how does when we they come together, how does that make them better? Joint decision making has shown to be leading to optimal outcomes versus individual decision making. So men and women may have different decision making styles, but the combination of maybe the women's con- the woman's conservatism and the man's more aggressive approach may have this sort of synergy to lead to something that that's better overall. 
uh, delegating different responsibilities where they don't work together may not may not be the best thing. I know I've learned a lot of, uh, from my wife about about saving money, and I'm more on the aggressive side, so it's it's really reined in some of these tendencies for me. So I think that couples could benefit from bringing their best to the table and discussing these difficult financial issues. Yeah, from our perspective, we we definitely deal with the the man uh, or the husband most of the time with the financial issues and the financial planning. But uh, Wolfgang and I really do make a point, and I think it's very important to to have the the wife or female involved. And um, not only is it important for education or if something happens to them or the, the wife lives longer, mm-hmm. but the fact that, uh, that they need to understand, you know, what their money is doing. They need to understand. They need to be comfortable. Like last December, we had a market crash. You have to understand the process. And the more that you educate your clients, both male and female, because they can both overreact to, to market swoons and crashes, uh, the more they understand the real process, the more likely they're going to be a successful investor. You said something uh, before we started the show about what you're doing with your tax refund, and your wife was actually the one that made the decision as to what that where that money should go. She she helped. Uh, she well, I'll say she made the decision. So we, we're going to pay off our car, which is a, I think a wise thing. Like I said, it's a productive thing. But uh, I can tell you that uh, when I first met my wife, that would not have been her decision with her tax return. So I can say that uh, through education and us working together, and like you said, you have a yin and a yang, which I think is important. Uh, you can make better financial decisions over the long term. I would say that she is more of the offensive person. She wants to go out and make the, the big bucks, and she and I, so do I, don't get me wrong, but uh, I'm more of the defensive person saying, you know what, I want to make sure this house is paid off. I want to make sure we have a nice fi- financial foundation. You have insurance to make sure if something happens. So all those things, I'm sort of covering off the bases, and then she's uh, moving over to that side of the court, but uh, mm-hmm. it took a while to get there. Jack, what is it? Uh, sorry, um, uh, Amos, not Jack. Uh, what is it about men that make them want to make? Is it biology? Is it you know? You, we were talking a little bit about testosterone. Mm-hmm. Like, talk to us a little bit about <laughs> why they make these decisions, and you know, like you said, create bubbles sometimes in the market because of their behavior. <laughs> well, I can tell you that, that I've studied testosterone in depth and looking at it, if you, if you give men testosterone, they will trade more frequently. They will create asset bubbles that go- Are they shooting f- traders with that as they go you know, through the door? This is really fun. I have a paper called The, the Bull of Wall Street. If okay. you go ahead and look it up, uh, it's it's freely available. It talks about this experiment where we gave guys testosterone and created this massive asset bubble. Um, and in this research, I found out that around the same time we ran the experiment, over-the-counter, not over-the-counter, it's almost essentially over-the-counter these days, but but prescribed testosterone became very popular among Wall Street traders. And so this experiment that we did in a controlled lab experiment is actually reflecting what was happening in Wall Street starting 2013, 2012, something like that. And so... Um, that, was a, that was a huge bull market. The market was up by like 30% <laughs> in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so we you're know giving them the juice. Yeah. The, the, they're juicing themselves. They're taking it off okay. label. And uh, this is, it's, it's, it's funny if it weren't so scary, the idea that you, you essentially divorce from fundamental value and you're trading non fundamentals, you're speculating. So uh, that's, that's always dangerous. So biology plays a big part of it. Okay. Uh, there's also, there's also culture. Male culture is different from female culture. I can speak specifically in the, in the, in the U.S. Guys, is very much a macho. I'm going to outdo the other guy attitude, uh, which has really no root in in the reality of the fundamentals of the assets they're trading. So I have a friend who is a commodities trader in Chicago, and he told me stories that you wouldn't believe what drives prices of commodities. It has nothing to do with fundamentals. I mean, these guys would pretend to literally be insane to try to get the bids. It's a whole other story. Wow. So the so maleness per se is, is probably uh, not helping keep things tight in terms of uh, sort of affinity to, to fundamentals. But I think females have a more measured approach just from from my observations they do better they are more um they vet logic and they're, they're not as 
is tied up in being macho in that sense and, and making it big. They're looking at making consistent incremental wins over time, which is really the way to invest. It's not like a one, you're not trying to hit a grand slam. Um, if that's all you're trying to do, you're taking tons of risk. What's your opinion about robo-advisors or the, a, using AI? I mean, if you're a young person who's, say you're a young guy, 22, and you get your first job, you're making $90,000, so you got some money that you can put away. Um, if you know that you are predisposed to probably not trading very smartly, well, the, would you recommend they just go and sign up for one of these um, robo-advisor type of systems? Yeah, where Yeah, sure. I mean, a robo-advisor essentially just is an algorithm. And right. the notion of an algorithm is... Has no testosterone. Well, that's true. But <laughs> but someone who has you know excessive testosterone could be writing it. Right. But the point that's of an true. algorithm <laughs> is that it could also be extremely simple. And so I'm glad you mentioned that. And when I mean by simple algorithm, your own finances could be a stream of numbers that you then allocate into different buckets, which is a type of algorithm. 30% go here, 30% go here. And, and instead of thinking about letting your emotions drive you, I think that the robo big quotes on this or algorithmic approach is better than the emotional approach for long-term benefit. And I think that's exactly what you do with your I, clients. I, yeah, certainly. I could, But with the robo, I could say that I've uh, I've seen some of the exchange traded mm -hmm. fund portfolios that they've created. Mm -hmm. uh, someone has actually presented them, one, to, one of them to us and said, you know, I'd like to transfer over to you guys and I looked at it and it was a 30 year old and they said that they should have 60% equity at 40% fixed income and I looked at it I said you have a 30 year time horizon here your dollar cost averaging you basically have <laughs> no money in the market right now yeah. why do you have 40% of your money in fixed income do you understand the opportunity cost with that so I think those set it and forget it robo advisors I, I think they probably that checked a box that said I'm conservative yeah I'm it a was the intake process and it just yeah. went them right put them right there yeah their intake process that, that drove them yeah. pigeonholed them as a conservative advice you know investor led them to that distribution to that 60 40 which is not correct for that age range not at all and like mm -hmm. I said the, the power of compounding and time and Wolfgang talks at that about nauseam but it's so true the, the mm -hmm. opportunity cost that that individual would be missing out on by being so conservative at such a young age if they actually looked at the numbers they'd be shocked absolutely shocked well, I think that is the end of this segment. Um, thank you so much, Amos, for being here and uh, opening our eyes to, you know, just different things about men and women and how we invest and why we make such dumb decisions about our it's, money It's all, all the about time. education, though, Rubina. That's what it is. That's what we try and do here, educate. Uh, and by doing that, you will become wealthier. Set up a systematic plan and you can help yourself. And the one bit of advice I have is delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. That is the number one thing. If you want something, just wait a bit. You might make a better decision three months from now, and you might also get a better deal three months from now. That's my general thinking when it comes to almost everything when it comes to money. Uh, this is Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, and we will be right back. Making money is the best. So how do you make more money? back after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back and good morning to all our listeners. This is Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. So we were talking about behavioral finance, why we make all those DUMB decisions about our money. And now we're going to talk about something DUMB dumb that I have in my life. I have don't have a updated will. And we have with us today in studio a wills and estate lawyer, Jennifer Lynch. She's with Robbins Appleby. And she is going to get my button gear to get that <laughs> will because she's going to tell me how important it is to have one. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So I have um, a handwritten will that's in my house that just kind of gives, you know, an idea of and this was because my husband and I went to Italy last week, uh, last last week, last year, and it was just the two of us. And I was really nervous because we didn't have anything that would 
indicate what we want to do with our assets if something was to happen to us. So we got the advice, just write the handwritten will. So that's what we did. And now that's where it's ended. What is that called? And why should I get something a little bit more legitimate? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good question. So a handwritten will is actually called at law a holographic will. And it's a defined term in our legislation. And a holographic will is binding at law. So you can technically prepare your own will without the without the assistance of a lawyer. And it can be valid, assuming that you either do what you've done. So you do it all in your own handwriting and then sign your name at the bottom, preferably also date it, because then if there's ever a question of whether or not it was the last will that you wrote, because the last will you write will always govern at your death, death then then there's no question of that it's dated the other way to make a valid will is of course just to have a will prepared and have that then signed by executed by you in the presence of two witnesses and those witnesses cannot be your spouse uh, or a beneficiary of your estate or the spouse of a beneficiary of your estate so essentially the second way is just to meet the other requirements of making a valid will so Jennifer, mm-hmm. um, in preparing all the wills that you've done, because that's basically all that you do as a lawyer, right? It's very rare actually to find a, a strictly will and estate lawyer. And part of the reason is because there's a lot of pitfalls and there's a lot of errors that you can make. And uh, there's liability as a lawyer. And a lot of lawyers actually don't want to take on that responsibility. So looking at some of these holographic wills that mm-hmm. I'm sure that you've seen. Yes, I have. What are some of the common errors and why do you want to get professionally done? Well, that's that's a good question. So, I mean, just because you can make your own will doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And <laughs> There's a lot of things that you can do that you necessarily maybe shouldn't do. Exactly. And and I would I would suggest that this is one of them. Okay. So, I have seen a few holographic wills. They don't come across my desk that often, but one of the errors that I've seen is someone simply not actually following those requirements. So it's kind of doing a half and half. So having something that's typed out or partially typed out and then signed by them. That then doesn't fulfill the requirements of being a holographic will and doesn't fulfill the requirements of being a validly prepared will. You essentially just die without a will. The other which I've seen is simply just drafting errors. I mean, it's complicated to write a will. You need a lot of experience and a lot of legal knowledge. And it's difficult when you're doing it yourself to to have all these things and know what, what you want to do and also what mistakes you could cause. So another error that I've seen is someone simply identifying all of the assets that they have and then leaving those to specific people, but not then accounting for what happens with all the remaining property that they might accumulate between the time that they write the will and the time that they die. We call this essentially the residue. So everything that's not specifically spelled out as an asset in your estate is the residue of your estate. And there's always a provision in your will to deal with that if it's drafted properly. Um, So very often people don't account for those types of distributions. What happens if you die without a will? Uh, What's the what's the what what do your what can your dependents do after that happens? Well, if you die without a will, in Ontario, it's actually your estate's governed by the Succession Law Reform Act. So there's a scheme of distribution and essentially a, a hierarchy of, of who's entitled to inherit from your estate. And it, uh, it is essentially would go spouse, if, if you have a spouse, if you don't have a spouse, it would go to your children, and then it would go further down. So to your grandchildren, if you have any, if you don't, to your siblings, then to your parents, then, sorry, then to nieces and nephews, then to parents. 
then to remote dist- beneficiaries, remote uh, next of kin. And if you don't have any of that, amazingly enough, it would go up back to the crown. So it would go to the government. And this is essentially what's set out in legislation. The problem with kind of dying without a will or leaving these things just up to the legal distribution that would otherwise happen is it can lead to unintended unintended consequences. And what most often happens is if somebody dies with a, a spouse and children, it's the spouse wouldn't inherit everything. If there is both spouse and children, the spouse would only be entitled to the first $200,000 of an estate. It's what we call the preferential share, and then would have to split the remainder with the children. So generally, that's not what people want. Generally, they would want their in- their spouse to in- inherit all of their assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's a little bit of a surprise. Um, yeah, I mean, to- wills and estates are really something that people, you know, they're really surprised with a lot of the outcomes and, and Jennifer's yeah. going through a bit of it here. But uh, the fact that uh, we spend so much time and, and work so hard to create wealth and people spend, you know, I call it eight hours a day working to create this wealth and then planning and systematically saving. And the fact that they don't create a proper will for themselves and account for it and upon their death have their, their wishes fulfilled through whether it goes to their spouse or their kids. The, the one, uh, I read an article recently saying that uh, the one place that really misses out if you don't have a will is charity. Mm-hmm. Wolfgang does a lot of work with charity. He does a lot of talking with Covenant House and the underprivileged. And um, if you have, you know, those wishes, uh, if you let the government take it all back, I think that's kind of the last place that most people want all of their money to go to. So, um, you know, whether it's to your family or to friends or to charities, it's important that you account for it in your will. Well, we have to take a quick little break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the importance of an executor, how you choose one, what their role is, how you keep in touch with them after they've been chosen. What if you stop liking them? What do you do with that person? Uh, So this is Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio 640 Toronto, and we will be right back. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Uh, this is Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. And we are in studio with Jack and with Jennifer Lynch, who is a wills and estate lawyer. And Jennifer, we were talking a little bit about executors before we went to break. Tell me, why is it so important to choose your executor properly? Well, it's important because your executor is the person who's going to have charge and, and the authority to really administer your estate and deal with all of your assets after you die and and essentially distribute those assets to your beneficiaries of your estate. So it can be quite a difficult job. It can be a job that can last for a very long amount of time. You know, sometimes it could take a year, sometimes it could take a few years. So you want to really be choosing somebody who has the right characteristics for it and the right personality. And just because you choose an executor, and I would suggest if you're going to choose an executor, you're going to probably want to let them know. <laughs> yeah, that would probably be smart. But I, I think yeah. some people don't, mm-hmm. right? And it sounds as ridiculous yeah, as I it sounds. I thought you always had to have them sign or there was some indication that they knew what their job was. Is that not No, the case? you no? don't. Really, it's just a matter of who you're naming in your will. I so gotcha. you would sit down with your lawyer and your lawyer would, would essentially name that person in your will. So you don't have to uh, have the executors sign and you don't have to have them agree beforehand, but you really should. Um, I mean, and you and I also would go so far as to say that 
if it's in an instance where you're naming maybe some of your children or one of your your children to be the executor and not the others, which is, is not a bad idea in, in certain cases, but you should also maybe even tell the children that you didn't name as executor that you're you're not choosing them just for the sake of family harmony. And so for the sake that there's no surprises after the fact, you want to name somebody who has dis- discussed it with you and has agreed to act and knows what they're getting into. And in because I would say it's a very big commitment, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as Jennifer is talking about, and having an naming an executor does not necessarily mean that that will actually be the person that administers your will. You have to understand that because they can still renounce if on your passing, if they look at the estate and say, you know what. I can't do it for whatever reason. They don't have to actually act as your executor. And then you could potentially name, I guess, a second executor. Is that how it works, Jennifer? That's right, Jack. So so you would always name an alternate. It's always a good idea when you're setting out your will to name who could act if the first executor is unwilling or unable or even if they've predeceased you. Um, so there there is always a backup. But that's a good point that the people you name don't have to act. They can always renounce the appointment when you die. So that's another a really good reason of why it's a good idea to talk to them beforehand and make sure this is something that they're willing to do. Is there certain characteristics you should look for in an executor? Should it be someone who is also going to benefit from your death that, you know, assets will be coming to them? Or should it be someone completely on the outside who will just be responsible for making sure it's, your will is distributed the way that you mm-hmm. wanted it to be? Well, absolutely, there are characteristics that you should look for. So I mean, you should name somebody, I think, who's trustworthy and, and generally capable of, of doing something like that. Um, and, and these are considerations that people don't always really think of because sometimes just the default would be to name their children. And and sometimes it's, you know, their children may not be the best choice. Um, sometimes it's it's also people might name an advisor. So if they have a longstanding relationship to their lawyer or their accountant, they might name that. And and definitely having that personal knowledge of somebody's affairs is a big benefit. Um, but those are really the characteristics. Whether or not you have a, a, a personal interest in somebody's estate or not, I don't think really matters. When you're acting as an executor, you're ask, acting as a fiduciary, and your role is is to act what in the best interests of the beneficiaries of the estate and what's in the best interest of the estate. So you really shouldn't have those personal or the uh, the possibility or the appearance of those personal conflicts shouldn't really weigh into somebody's decision making about who to appoint. So, so acting as a fiduciary, as an executor, what's the what's the risk? What's the liability uh, if someone comes back to you uh, from the estate, maybe a beneficiary, or say you pay out all the money and then you know what? I didn't realize that the, the estate actually owed a bunch of tax. Now I got to mm-hmm. go out and and cut a check to Revenue Canada. So, so what is the responsibility and liability for an executor? Because I think that's important too. Yeah, that's that's another good question. So there is personal liability when you act as an executor. So you are responsible for debts and liabilities that might come up after somebody's death while you're acting as an executor. So, I mean, in the normal course of things, people are very diligent and they receive professional advice and these problems don't come up. But if things are mismanaged and, for, ha- for instance, if a beneficiary were to make some sort of legal claim against an executor, they could potentially be looking at personal liability to the extent that they did something wrong or that there are not certain assets of the estate to cover um, other debts. What if your relationship changes? So the person that you chose as your executor was your best friend. You knew that they had your best interests at heart at that point, but then things go wrong and you're not 
in that situation anymore. Can is it just as simple as going back and naming a new executor? How do you how do you do that? Exactly, it is that simple, and that's and that is what somebody should do. So if you know that you've named somebody as an executor, and between the time when you signed your will and you know the the kind of current time, that person's no longer appropriate either because you just don't have the same relationship, or something could have changed in that person's life which makes them not really a good choice anymore. Then you should just update your will, and it is that simple. And people like me why is it that we're so apprehensive to go in and get the will done do we is it because most of us think that it's just so complicated and we don't want to talk about our death what is it what's the emotion behind it why we don't get our will done properly with a lawyer i i think <laughs> i i mean i think you've identified it there i think people think that it's going to be this very complicated process and you know often when you it, it, and I'm not saying it, it can't be in some instances but in most times when you s- see somebody who knows what they're doing and um, can give you good advice it shouldn't be a really difficult process um, it should be somewhat simple and, and I think the other reason is like you said people just don't want to talk about these things you know sometimes it's a chore and people always think that they can put it off till another day um, it's almost like the retirement thing, right? People don't save for retirement or they, they don't plan to save for retirement because it's so far off in the future. And you know what? Uh, I don't want to think about right now. I have this recency bias that, you know, I, I have this thing that's coming up next week that is so much more important than dealing with my will. But like you said, you're you're building this wealth. You're creating this wealth for your family. You at least want to make sure that it, get dis- it gets distributed whatever way you intend. It doesn't matter. It's your choice as an individual, but it should be at least carried out through your will. Professionally, uh, professionally set up and managed. That's right. And I think to the people who really, where it's a little bit of a personal block or a mental block that they don't want to do because they feel that it's a difficult topic for them to think about, I can assure them that they will feel much better after they've done it. And what's the typical cost? Say you have a simple situation where you own your home and you have some money in your RSP, something very typical of many Canadians. What's the cost of getting a will drawn up? It, that's really hard to say because it does depend on um, how complicated it is and it really does depend on the amount of time that the lawyer spends with the person and, and a number of other factors. So it's it's very difficult to, to kind of give a, even a range of that. Um, but I think for most people, you know, a, a, if they were to call a lawyer and have an initial call, um, the lawyer could probably give them an estimate over the phone before they even meet with them that would you know, at least give them a little bit of an indication of what the cost may be. Okay, perfect. So, Robina, you're getting a will done? Yes, I'm going to get one done. I'm going to get it done in May. That's my promise. <laughs> in the month of May, Rubina Ahmed Huck and her husband will have a will done properly by a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it has been such a joy and a pleasure to be the host today uh, at well, th- Hi-Fi Thank Radio. you for joining us, Rubina. I-, I said to Wolf, I've got a-, a blind date with your old co-host from CP24. Did I live up to the standard that Wolf you, had set for me? Be, uh, be, you, yeah, exceeded <laughs> my expectations. Thank you very much. Uh, Jack, it was great working with you. Jennifer, it was great meeting you and uh, learning more about wills and estates and why it's so important for us to all have a up-to-date will. Not just a will written in handwriting, but an up-to-date one that is done properly by a lawyer. Uh, we are on air every Saturday morning, so tune in. And next week, Wolfgang will be back from his holiday in Europe. and uh, He'll be sharing all his stories. I just can't wait. Hopefully he'll have nice things to say about this show. Uh, this is Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio 640, Toronto. 
listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.